All right, Luke chapter 2. Once again, well, we began last week with Caesar Augustus, verse 1. We begin this week with Quirinius, verse 2. So we want to talk a little bit about this somewhat illustrious Roman character, fairly well known from the sources from the first century B.C., first century A.D. He was born Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, about 50 B.C. Now, his name is transliterated by the King James Cyrenius, based upon the Greek form Quirinius. He was born near Rome to a wealthy family from which he was able to rise to prominence during the age of the Pax Romana that Augustus Caesar had brought in. Now that prominence first became apparent in 15 BC when he was appointed proconsul of Crete and Cyrenaica by Augustus Caesar. Now let's take a look at your map so that you have an idea of where Crete and Cyrenaica are. Crete is in the same place today as it was back then. Where is Crete today? Where? It is in the Mediterranean Sea today as it was in the ancient world. And you'll notice it on your map between the E and the M of empire on the Mediterranean. Now, south of Crete, you'll see the region that the Romans called Cyrenaica and Cyrene, the chief city of that region. It was here over these two areas that Quirinius was made proconsul. And while he was there, that is, he was camped out in Cyrenaica, while he was there, he conducted a very successful military campaign against desert tribes of the Sahara. You can see the Sahara Desert below the line of Libya there. Of course, the Sahara is still there today. And because of his success in making that border quiet from those raiding tribes, he became a distinguished war hero back in Rome. Well, that brought him once again to the attention of Caesar Augustus. So three years later, in 12 BC, he was appointed consul. That's a, that's a step up the ladder, not pre-proconsul, but consul, and appointed governor of Galatia and Paphlagonia. Now, if you still have your map in front of you, I think you can find Galatia in Asia Minor. Uh, what country is Asia Minor today, Robert? Asia Minor. Asia Minor is Turkey today. <clears throat> okay, and you'll see that Galatia, if you know where Turkey is, it's above the P-I-R-E there. Galatia is right in the middle. And of course, this is a region to which Paul directed his epistle to the Galatians. All right, so Galatia is there. <clears throat> Where's Paphlagonia? Well, it's not on your map, unfortunately. But you'll see north of Galatia, next to the Euxine Sea. What is that Euxine Sea? Where do we call that today? 
That is the Black Sea. Yes, Pontus Euxinus, that's the Latin for Black Sea or Black Lake. <clears throat> you see Pontus and Bithynia, and actually they're too close together by that map. They should be separated right there where Sinope is. You see the city Sinope on the coast of the Black Sea. That's Paphlagonia between Bithynia on the west and Pontus on the east. So it was this region through Central Asia Minor all the way up to the Black Sea over which Quirinius was appointed consul by Caesar Augustus. Now, as a result of being in that area in the years 5 to 3 B.C., he conducted military campaigns against the Homonadensians, who are a mountain tribe that ravaged the uh, regions of the mountains of Cilicia. Cilicia. Now, to find Cilicia, look at the R in Empire and go directly north. And you actually know somebody from Cilicia. Because if you look to the right of Cilicia, what city do you see? Tarsus. Tarsus. And who do you know? Paul of Tarsus from the region of Cilicia. All right, well, this group of mountain tribesmen was harassing the legions of, of the empire, and so Quirinius conducted a campaign to quiet them down. So he's extending his reputation as a military hero and a very capable general in campaigns. All right, well, he's on this upward spiral, and in 1 B.C., he's appointed rector, which means the guide or the kind of supervisor of Gaius Caesar, grandson of Augustus, one of two grandsons of Augustus. The next one, Lucius Caesar, is also listed there on your outline. You may remember that last week I called these two sons of Augustus Caesar, and actually that is true. They were both grandsons and sons. Well, how can you do that? Well, because he adopted them as sons, even though they were his grandsons. They were actually sons of his daughter, Julia, and he appointed Quirinius to be the guide or kind of tutor or take him on the campaign trail, etc., and show him the ropes. And that's what Quirinius did with Gaius, and uh, in the process, he would have had some contact with Lucius Caesar, also the other grandson, but he died in 2 AD, and then Gaius died two years after his brother. He was on a campaign with Quirinius in Parthia and Armenia. He was wounded. He never recovered from the wound and died before he got back to Rome. Now, Parthia is actually on your map as well. Uh, you can see Parthia to the right of Syria, north of the Arabian Desert. Let's do our modern geography. What was, what's the country where Parthia is occupying that space? What's that country today? That is not Syria. Syria is to the left. You can actually see Syria there. 
It is not Iran. That is too far east. It is Iraq, correct. Now, that doesn't mean that it didn't touch a little bit of modern-day Iran, but what you see there on the map is the location of modern-day Iraq. And then north of Parthia, you see the kingdom of Armenia. The Armenians had a very large kingdom, and Armenia is still there today, uh, much reduced in size. The Armenians are not Armenians, and the Armenians are not Armenians. You do not pronounce Armenianism Armenianism because you're confusing an ethnic group, which is Eastern Orthodox in confession and belief, with a Protestant group of uh, mostly Methodists and others. All right, now, while we're at it, learning our modern-day geography... Kingdom of Armenia there, there's a portion of Armenia that's still there. Actually, in between Armenia and Parthia is Kurdistan, modern-day Kurdistan. You heard about the Kurds and their participation in the battle with ISIS and others. Uh, About where that uh, kingdom of Armenia, the, the OM on kingdom, that's Azerbaijan, modern-day Azerbaijan, and north of that, just to the right of Colchis, on the edge of the Black Sea, is Georgia. Now, you'll know that there is a Georgia in Russia, or at least in the old Soviet Union, and that's where it's located. It's not a plantation, uh, uh, it's not a plantation uh, country. All right. No peanuts. No peanuts. Well, I shouldn't say I don't know there are any peanuts. I don't think there are any peanuts, but... At any rate, um, you're looking at a map, of course, which is still in the news with Syria and Iraq and the Middle East and the Kurds and the Armenians and the Turks and the Iranians, etc. In other words, it's a good thing for you to review your biblical geography because it helps you understand your modern geography a little bit. <clears throat> any questions? David? Um. I remember uh, Cretan is a derisive term. What was there? Yeah, the Cretans are always liars. That's that's an old phrase. Do I remember correctly, Scott? Is that quoted in the New Testament? Yeah. Titus. Yes. Yeah, it was a, it was a it was a term of abuse for the Cretans by the Greeks. And so, yes, it's got a long history in uh, Greek culture. All right, now, back to Quirinius. When Gaius Caesar died in 4 AD, Caesar Augustus had no successor because Lucius had already died two years before. Gaius is dead. His two adopted sons are gone. So who to be his successor? So in 4 AD, when Gaius dies, Caesar Augustus names Tiberius to be his successor, and he adopts him. Now, that meant that as in the case of Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, there was no one from his own body who succeeded him. Because Tiberius was not 
the fruit of his own body. Well, back to Quirinius, who becomes governor in Syria in 6 AD and orders a taxation or census of the region, and we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the bottom of the page, but just we'll just note right now that he is, uh, <clears throat> he is definitely governor of Syria in 6 AD, and at the same time, he is given the power by Caesar Augustus to annex Judea on the deposition of Archelaus. Now, Archelaus is one of the sons of Herod the Great. And when Herod died, he was given control of Judea, but he could not control it. In other words, he could not govern it. It was riotous, and the Romans did not like riotous provinces or regions. And so Archelaus was removed by Caesar Augustus in 6 AD and banished into exile. And his name appears in the Bible in Matthew 2.22 because he is the king of Judea when the Holy Family comes back from Egypt. Well, that brings us to 14 AD when Augustus Caesar died and Tiberius succeeded him. Quirinius, Quirinius was a very good friend of Tiberius Caesar so that when he died in 21 AD, Tiberius delivered his funeral eulogy. Now, the prominence of Quirinius is uh, certain from many records from the Roman Empire and many documents from the Roman Empire. Quirinius authorizes a well-attested census in 6 AD as Josephus and other matters testify. So this question about the census in verse 2 presents a problem. And we'll look at the problem by, first of all, examining the first verse of chapter 3. If you look at that verse, you will notice that in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, something happened. Now, what's the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? Well, when did he become Caesar? And you look at your outline, and the answer is 14 AD. So what year are we at in Luke 3.1? We're at 29 AD. All right, now you turn over to verse 23 of Luke chapter 3, and you read what Luke says. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So how old is Jesus in 29 AD? According to Luke 3.23, he's approximately 30 years old. Now, that wouldn't fit on the usual chronology for the birth of Jesus, namely, born during the reign of Herod the Great, which, for most scholars, is sometime before 4 B.C., when Herod the Great dies. All right, so we do have some tension here, and 
The critics love to point to this passage and explain that Luke is confused or Luke is just simply wrong. He's made a mistake. And they bring in support of their argument that Luke is wrong, that there is no evidence of a worldwide Roman census during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And that is true. There is no evidence of a worldwide Roman census. And in addition to that, there is no evidence, say the critics, of a wife being required to journey with her husband to enroll in a census of taxation. Now, this is a kind of dumbed-down version of the very complex question. You can't imagine the piles of literature that have been written on this verse about the census of Quirinius. It's huge. It's a very extensive literature. So, I'm condensing it in terms of the most salient features, just so you have a sense of the issue. Well, is there a solution to the apparent dilemma? Well, the greatest solution came from a very great historian and biblical archaeologist of the 19th and early 20th century, Sir William Ramsey, who made the suggestion that Quirinius was governor of Syria twice. Even though the record does not show it, Josephus tells us that he was governor in 6 AD, but Ramsey postulated on the basis of some evidence that he had found in Asia Minor that Quirinius was governor of Syria in 7 BC as well, which, of course, if true, would fit the pattern roughly of the time of the birth of Jesus. Now, while we're talking about the 6 AD census, which Josephus records, let's turn to the book of Acts for a moment, and let's see what Luke says in chapter 5, verse 37 of the book of Acts. Acts 5, 37. Now, this is a comment about a rebel named Thutis, who claimed to be a somebody, perhaps a messianic figure. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. I'm sorry. And he, and I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong verse. I looked at 36 instead of 37. 37. After Thutis came Judas of Galilee, who rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. All right now, he rose up in the days of the census. What census is this? This is the 6 A.D. census that Josephus mentions. So, Luke is very much aware of the 6 A.D. census. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go on to discuss this issue. David? Uh, though there were different calendars, Augustus was the one that brought everything under the under a central calendar system, and um, 
that doesn't mean that everybody cooperated right away, but that will not affect this issue because we're talking about years apart. All right, so Luke does know about the 6 AD census of Quirinius, though he doesn't name Quirinius there in Acts 5.37. And no evidence of a census is not evidence of no census. I'll expand on that in a moment, but ponder that. No evidence of a census is not evidence of no census. Now, finally, with respect to the charge of the critics that there's no evidence that a wife was required to take a journey in a census of taxation. You have in your packet an edict on a census which dates from A.D. 104 from a Roman precept in Egypt. And in that census, you will notice from Gaius Vivius Maximus, prefect of Egypt, that everybody is to register and all persons are to be absent from their homes for any reason whatsoever. In other words, everybody is required to go register, and that includes wives as well as husbands. Therefore, to say that there is no evidence within the Roman census system, and 104 AD, it's still the Roman Empire, to say there is no evidence of a wife being required to go flies in the face at least of the evidence of this document, which supports the suggestion that a wife would be required. Well, let me go back to that statement that we have no evidence. To declare, as the critics do, that we have no evidence of a census taken by Quirinius proximate to the birth of Christ is not true. To say that we have no evidence that a census was taken by Quirinius near to the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is simply not true. We do have evidence. We have evidence of such a taxation because Luke records it. Luke records the evidence in chapter 2, verse 2 of his gospel. This is evidence. It is testimony to an event. To suggest that Luke is wrong because there is no collateral extra-biblical evidence of such a census is to manifest a strong bias and prejudice against Luke as an historian. But, of course, that's standard procedure for the critics Standard procedure for the liberals. The Bible is never to be trusted. It is always to be distrusted unless it can prove itself from unimpeachable external sources that it's right. There is this ingrained prejudice against the truthfulness of the Bible that has been present since the rise of the Enlightenment, 18th century. Now, to be biased against Luke's historicity is part of a larger bias against the historicity of the Bible as a whole, as I've just indicated. And it is part of that cottage industry, which is now 2,000 years old, 
that got a real shot of adrenaline in the 18th century. It's two year, 2,000 years old, this cottage industry, which delights in trying to prove that there are historical blunders in the scriptures. And one of which, aha, is in Luke chapter 2, verse 2. Gotcha. There is no Quirinius census. And no matter how many times the archaeologist Spade has turned up an extra biblical confirmation of a biblical fact, and this continues to occur even as I speak, you cannot imagine within the last year how many things have been dug up in Palestine which are confirming things in the Bible. If you don't stay on top of these things, you don't realize how your Bible is being confirmed by what they're digging up. And yet, it is amazing. But, nonetheless, this cadre of bigots continues to live in either denial or to dig in their heels on points where no outside cooperation yet exists. Luke chapter 2, verse 2, has no outside cooperation Therefore, say the critics, Luke chapter 2, verse 2, is historically false. But, isn't that flying in the face of even greater evidence? You remember Luke in his prologue, first chapter, first four verses. Luke in his prologue told us about his meticulous research. He told us that he made an exact investigation of the sources, the eyewitnesses, the records, and the verbal testimony to the life of Christ. He tells us that. That's the evidence of Luke the historian. Obviously, he had access to material, to evidence, to testimony, which is no longer extant or still buried beneath the earth of the former Roman Empire. And if Luke is a native of Antioch of Syria, as it seems likely to me, if Luke is a native of Antioch of Syria, he hails from the region over which Quirinius was once governor, a region with records of that governorship, records which may no longer be extant, save in Luke's summary and record of them, in the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that the whole world was to be taxed, and this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, one more note. I direct your attention to the symmetry of time or date in reference to verses 1 and 2 of this second chapter. Notice the parallels. The decree of Caesar Augustus in those days and the era of Quirinius' hegemony over Syria. I use the word hegemony because Luke uses it. The Greek word hegemonuo, translated governor, in your English translation appears in this verse 2, the second verse. And the English word hegemony, meaning authority over, is derived from that Greek word. Luke coordinates the date of Caesar's decree 
with the date of Quirinius's rule as hegemon or governor of Syria. Now, I submit that this is not the tactic of a writer who does not know what he is doing or is confused or is flat out wrong. This is a deliberate duplicate symmetry from an historian closer to the facts than any naysayer up to 2,000 years removed. On the basis of Luke's emphatic evidence in Luke 2, verse 1 and verse 2, the symmetry is emphatic. I will trust Luke's testimony over all the critics who argue he is mistaken, a conclusion they reach on the basis of no evidence. No evidence. They admit they have no evidence. But this evidence they refuse to recognize. They wouldn't treat the New York Times this way. Why do they treat a historical statement in the Bible this way? Why does the Bible get the short shrift when it comes to historical statements? Because, of course, the Bible is a target, which is what the Enlightenment wanted to do. Ridicule the Bible, poke it full of holes, and all those benighted Neanderthals that go to church, they'll give it up. And, of course, that's been very successful, even into the postmodernist church, where most of the liberal Protestantism of America doesn't believe that that statement in Luke 2, 2 is accurate. They don't believe it's true. They believe all the critics because they've been taught by liberals that it's a falsehood. It's wrong. And the Bible you read has wrong errors in it from beginning to end. That's prejudice. That's not even scientific, let alone historical. So, I rest my case on Luke. He has proved to be an accurate historian in so many other instances that I fail to take the time, I would have to fail to take the time to do what Sir William Ramsey did when he wrote his most famous book, Luke the Physician, in which he talks about the marvelous historical accuracy of Luke, the gospel writer. That tradition still exists. That is, that Luke is a brilliant historian, very accurate historian. That tradition still exists in minority, evangelical, and Protestant conservative circles where the inerrancy of the Bible is taken seriously, as it is here by me, and I trust by you as well. Any questions? Yes, Scott. Are, are there other uh, historians who make claims that aren't collaborated by any other historians in the ancient world? I imagine there are, but uh, it's not a study I've made. Do you have something specific well, in mind? I just thought maybe, I don't know if this, uh, the fact that there was a census uh, in 6 AD is stated by anyone else by, besides Josephus, but I just don't know. You know maybe that's oh, there, there is an inscription which also supports that 6 AD statement of Josephus. So I don't think it's arguable that Josephus is right. There is a census of Quirinius in 6 AD. But is Ramsey right? There's an unrecorded census in 7 BC or earlier. I'm just thinking, I bet there's many statements they will accept from Tacitus and Livy that 
Oh, I see your point. Oh, yes. No, 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 no. They'll say Homer is more accurate than the Bible. The Bible is always suspect. See, we've got manuscripts of the Bible that come from the second century A.D. We haven't got a manuscript of Homer until 900 years later. And yet, you see, they don't do textual criticism on Homer. They do textual criticism on the New Testament, where we've got virtual whole codices for within 200 years. But they go around picking up changes in the text. Therefore, there's mistakes here. Well, why don't you do that with Homer? Why don't you do that with Tiglath-Pileser's annals from the Assyrian Empire? Why don't you treat those other documents the way you treat the Bible? Oh, no. No. Okay. Now let's go on to um, the structure, which I am repeating, but I'm also interleaving some comments that we didn't make last week. You'll notice how I've arranged the first five verses there with the passive infinitive to be taxed argument for the grammar there. I made that case last week, so we'll accept the fact that to be taxed, according to the King James translation, is the best translation here because it's consistent throughout. Why? What's the method of my madness? Why do you think I arranged those lines that way? Well, I'll give you a There is parallelism, but it is kind of parallelism. <clears throat> Notice it's a the best I could do with a downward pattern. Okay, moving from one down to five. Now, why did I do that? Because you'll notice in verse one that all the world, the ecumene, as we pointed out last word, the ecumenical region, that is the whole Roman-wide world or ecumenical Roman empire, the whole world of Rome is to be taxed. But in verse 3, we are downsizing or telescoping downward. All is to go or to go to his or her city, to their own city. So we moved from the ecumenical worldwide Roman Empire to everyone's own native city. And where do we end up in verse 5? We end up with Joseph and Mary in their native city, or at least their ancient lineage city, the particular city of the lineage of Joseph and Mary, the city of David, which is Bethlehem. So what we have here is a progressive downward spiral from the broad universal to the general, to the particular, to the specific. And it's done to draw our attention down to Bethlehem of Judea. Luke does not cite the little town of Bethlehem prophecy from Micah 5.2. 
doesn't mean he doesn't know about it. <clears throat> He's bringing Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem through the action of the king of the world. Unknown to him, that action, decreeing this census that the whole world be taxed, sends the king of kings to the place of his ancestral birth, the house of David. Luke brings you to Bethlehem without the prophecy, but with the providence of God determining and directing the broad, more general, and particular instances of those who were to be taxed. All right. Now, um, side comment. Mary and Joseph are named there, and they go to Bethlehem. Joseph is called of the house and family of David. Now, the genealogy at the end of chapter 3 traces Jesus through Joseph as his supposed father, as we read a little earlier, which means that the line that traces Jesus to David goes to Joseph of Nazareth. Does that mean Mary is also of the house of David? I am inclined to think so because of the way Luke puts them together here. However, I'm a minority of a minority, but I just raise the question. Because I think the whole family, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Jesus' brothers and sisters, the whole family is of the line of David. This is a messianic family, not just a messianic head of the family not miss a messianic husband. This is a messianic family. It traced their lineage back all the way to David. Now, Matthew's genealogy does the same thing through the line of Joseph. and doesn't bring Mary into the picture. So it is true that the doubt is plausible. Namely, Mary may not have been from the house of David. She may have not been a descendant of the tribe of Judah. I recognize the possibility. But I like what Luke has done here. And for that reason, I think it is also plausible. In my opinion, more plausible. 51% as opposed to 49. More plausible that she was also of the house of David. All right. It's not a big deal, obviously. It's an interesting observation. It would put the so-called holy family together in terms of their lineage which I also think is what Luke is trying to do here implicitly, if not explicitly. All right, we'll, go ahead, Scott. Would this census that you pointed out at all perhaps collaborate that simply because all persons are required to go to their homes to put Mary in a different location? Yes, that's a good observation. Um, <clears throat> she would have been required to go somewhere else if she were from a different tribe. Uh, <clears throat> she could have been of the tribe of Judah, but not of the house of David. So it's possible that that is in the background. However, you know, I, I, I make my case for the fact that Luke keeps them together here, and the lineage of David is, I think, pregnant. Pun intended. Yes? Wouldn't that have to go through Mary? 
Uh, no, he's not, but the lineage would be traced through the ostensible father or husband. As Luke says, he was supposed to be the son of Joseph. That's simply the Jewish way of looking at descent. Yes, Randy? Would it be possible to trace a woman's genealogy? They, they wouldn't bother to do that, so could you do it? Not in every case, but you notice that when we're looking at Elizabeth, she's from the house of Aaron. So she goes all the way back to Moses' brother in Luke 1. And in the book of Numbers, you have the daughters of Zelophehad, who can trace their genealogy back to their father in Egypt and also forward into the promised land because they have a claim to an inheritance. You've got Naomi and Ruth, another issue of inheritance, female descent, female line, of uh, entitlement. So it's it's not excluded. In other words, there are instances in which the lineage of women in the Bible is traced. Okay, now before we uh, go to the break, it just was fortuitous that Bruce Winter's uh, newest book just came out. The Divine Honors for the Caesars, the First Christian's Responses. Very interesting treatment of the kind of thing we've been talking about for the last two weeks here. And obviously this is a major uh, treatment of the issue and contains some of the documents that we've already talked about, particularly with respect to Caesar Augustus. And he, he, he grapples with the archaeological evidence and the uh, textual evidence, the evidence from uh, Roman documents of the challenges the Christians had, for instance, at Corinth, in Thessalonica, and obviously in Galatia. So uh, it's kind of an interestingly fortuitous uh, publication because it brings to a head some of these discussions we've had, not only about the emperor cult, the worship of the emperor, but also how the Christians of the first century responded to that, how they handled that challenge. All right. Now we turn our attention to verse 5, which is an explicit declaration of the virgin birth or the virgin conception. And as we have this matter before us, obviously she was engaged to Joseph and was with child, and yet without having had any marital intercourse with him, or any other man for that matter. Now, the virgin birth gives us patterns of recapitulation. And I want to go through these for the sake of your consideration, and also urge you to look at the profound pattern which is involved in the virgin birth because there is a remarkable theological drama being drawn out by this doctrine. It cannot be simply dispensed with easily. It cannot be dismissed. It cannot be easily denied without denying a great deal that's attached to it. So, All of the modern liberals who are hostile to this are also implicitly hostile to
to the theology that's attached to it, whether it's Historia Salutis, that is redemptive historical theology, or whether it's Ordo Salutis, ethico-moral theology. So let's think through the virgin birth in terms of these recapitulation paradigms. Now, when we say the redemptive historical perspective, we're talking about the pattern of salvation in history, history of salvation, history of redemption. And we note that the first Adam was brought into the world by supernatural act of God. He's formed out of the dust of the earth by the immediate action of God supernaturally. There is no natural formation or origination of Adam, Adam the first. Now, you will notice also that the second Adam is brought into the world by a supernatural act of God. In this case, God the Holy Spirit, who, of course, is responsible for coming over Mary, as the language is, overshadows her, whatever that particularly means, and bringing uh, Christ into her womb, stimulating the egg that she obviously ovulated and causing it to grow into a human being. Now, the first man, Adam the first, appears by no ordinary generation. Now, I'll explain what I mean by ordinary generation when we get down to the ethico-moral perspective. But right now, he appears by no ordinary generation. That is also true of the second man, Adam the last, who appears by no ordinary generation. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians 15.45. This very crucial statement of the apostle, where protos Adam, in the Greek text that he writes, this is the inspired apostle's pen, it is not Denison, protos Adam, the protological or first Adam, that's what protos means in Greek, the protological Adam is an Adam who arises from a direct act of God through no ordinary generation supernaturally, put it all together. The eschatological Adam, eschatos, last Adam, the eschatological Adam arises from a direct act of God through no ordinary generation and by supernatural agency. Notice the parallels as we look at that redemptive historical pattern. The parallels are implicit in Paul's language, but now we notice that that language is also part of the necessity of the virgin birth. We are attaching then the truth or historicity of the virgin birth to the pattern of the history of redemption, a la the theology of the Apostle Paul and the two humanities, two men. The man, Adam, and the man, Jesus. The man, Adam, who has all in his loins. The man, Jesus, who has all his elect in his loins. All right, that's implicitly a representative or federal principle, but I'm not elaborating on that. I'm simply noticing at the supernatural level that this, that these two events are symmetrical. 
They're parallel. They reinforce one another. Not just, well, we believe in the virgin birth, period. There's a lot of freight here, a lot more than you realize, because this freight enriches the doctrine, and it also makes it more important to the whole system of Paul's theology, the system of the Bible's theology, the system of orthodox uh, uh, orthodox systematic theology. They build the systematic theology or the doctrinal theology or the confessional theology on the Historia Salutis theology, redemptive historical theology. They enrich one another. They are not a threat to one another. Biblical theology or redemptive historical Vossian biblical theology is no threat to systematic theology. The people that say that it is, that accuse me of diminishing and deluding and degrading systematic theology are liars. I do not. I edited Francis Turretin. I've got proof positive that I'm not suspicious of systematic theology in three volumes of over 500 pages each. But what we are integrating here is that doctrinal, confessional, creedal theology with the biblical pattern of redemptive history, the exegetical pattern of what the Apostle Paul himself gives us. We have a first man protological atom. We have a last man eschatological atom. And they are symmetrically parallel in many ways. So, what are they parallel to in ethical moral categories? The ordo salutis. Well, the first atom appears without sin, without guilt, without the penalty of sin. That is, the corruption of nature, which comes from sin, the shame, which comes from the guilt of sin, and the judgment, which comes from the penalty of sin. First Adam appears on the stage of history with none of that. He is sinless or upright, as Ecclesiastes 7.29 says. And I'm going to interpret that upright of the inspired writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon himself, to mean essentially holy. He is set apart from sin. He's upright. He's not downright. He's righteous. He's not unrighteous. He's set apart from sin in his uprightness as he came from the hand of God. Now, the second Adam, in moral, ethical, or ethical moral fashion, appears without sin, without guilt, and without the penalty of sin, save what he takes vicariously upon himself. He is sinless. In fact, Mary is told that he will be holy in chapter 1, verse 35. He will, be, be, he will be the holy thing begotten of her, and he is set apart from sin by that holiness. Sinless first Adam, sinless second Adam. The propagation, then, of the first man, the protological Adam, is extraordinary. He is propagated by God himself without a woman's involvement. comes directly from the hand of God without the womb of a woman. Propagation of the second man, the eschatological Adam, is also extraordinary. He is propagated by God the Holy Spirit without a man. Notice the interesting reflexive balance there. 
Adam without the generation of a woman and Christ without the generation of a man. As if the symmetry is to bind both of the sexes in this wonderful and mysterious event. Extraordinary generation underscores an extraordinary person. And that means that Adam is no ordinary person. He is sinless until the fall. Christ is no ordinary person. He is sinless after the fall. Which brings us to ordinary generation. Sin is propagated by ordinary generation, the intercourse of a husband and a wife. Sin is not propagated in extraordinary generation, no intercourse of a man and a woman, or a virgin conception, birth from an intact virgin. What we have done is we have, in parallel fashion, provided a justification for why Jesus is born of a virgin. He is born of a virgin because Adam is born of God, as Jesus is born of God, the Holy Spirit. And that means that as Adam was generated by God without sin, so Jesus is generated by God, the Holy Spirit, without sin. In fact, we may take a step in a Christological direction, namely, that Christ is generated, your next sheet on your outline, Christ is generated, his sinless human nature, so that we may be regenerated, our sinful human nature. Now we're attaching the virgin birth to a much broader pattern than just simply the recapitulation of a first and second Adam motif. Now we're attaching the virgin birth to the drama of what it means to be born anew. For the human nature to be generated in Christ, sinless, is unto the purpose of regenerating our sinful human nature made like unto himself. The paradigm then of the virgin birth is essential to your regeneration. It is essential to your being made over from a sinful human nature to a nature which has been born again and renewed. No, not perfectly sinless, but having the disposition of the Holy Spirit, the disposition of grace, the disposition of desiring to avoid sin and put sin to mortify the sin that remains in your flesh. So that Christ is born without sin, so he can bear sin with which we are born. The virgin birth is absolutely crucial to your rebirth. Christ is born free of the curse, so that he may free us from the curse that we bear. Virgin birth, absolutely essential, absolutely essential to your redemption. Christ is born of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be reborn by the Holy Spirit. The fact that it is the Spirit that overshadows the womb of the Virgin Mary, it is the Holy Spirit that acts here, is a foreshadowing of the Spirit acting upon every born-again sinner. You, 
me and every person that's been regenerated by the grace of the Holy Spirit from the, from time immemorial, from Adam and Eve on. Notice how the Spirit's involvement here draws you in to the whole system of redemption. That you are sinful until the Spirit alters your sinful nature. You are born sinful until the Holy Spirit rebirths you, regenerates you with a new nature, with a new heart, with a new disposition. Your inclinations are now no longer directed towards sin. They are directed to the glory of God. You have been given a whole new heart. The habit, the habitus, the habit of sin has been broken. You do not sin with abandon as you once did. You do not sin without compunction as you once did. If you're sinning without compunction, you're not a Christian. If you're sinning without compunction, you're not a Christian. Simple as that. If you're acting in a sinful way and you're not pricked in your conscience and you're not feeling sorry, you don't repent of it, you're not a Christian. Simple as that. You're playing. You're faking. You're a fraud. Get down on your knees. The Holy Spirit doesn't make a fraud in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That is a powerful human being. Protected from the taint of original sin so that he can take the corruption and the taint of that original sin that you and I bear upon himself and cancel it. He can regenerate your original sin, your actual sin. He can regenerate it in such a way that you are not enslaved to it anymore. You're not bound to it. You're not in bondage to it. You've been set free from it because the Holy Spirit has touched your heart. The Holy Spirit has touched your heart like he touched the womb of the Virgin Mary. You see, therefore... What is involved here? Much more than just the fact of a virgin's womb, an intact virgin's womb, conceiving by a supernatural act of God a human being. But one who is more than a human being. He's God-man, God-hyphen. He's a theanthropic being. He has a divine nature and a human nature. She contributes to the human nature. He's already been divine. From all eternity. And there's the mystery of the incarnation. That this great eternal son of God. From all eternity. Never bound by anything. Bind himself. To a fetal. Fetal being. Fetal existence. In the womb of a virgin. To do so. So that you would not be bound. By your sin or the limitations of your own finitude. All right. Keep in mind that what we do here is to enrich the imagery of the virgin birth. What we do here is to penetrate beyond the obvious, well, you people don't believe in the virgin birth, and we do. That may be true, but we're not scoring points in these debates. We're talking about something much more serious than a mere supernatural act. It is 
a supernatural act, but it is much more significant than that. Because it attaches you to the whole history of redemption. It attaches you to the whole first Adam, second Adam paradigm. It attaches you to what Jesus himself became for your sake. Taking a human nature without sin so that your human nature could be delivered from sin. All right, now, um, we already talked about the uh, hook pattern with the Greek word tikto there in verse 6 and 7, which ties those two verses together as a unit in itself. And the first time in which we see that phrase, son in a manger, or baby in a manger, which appears in verse 12, and in verse 16, baby in a manger again. Those three units of this narrative of Luke's birth narrative, those three units were the child as born, not the child in utero, but the child as born is present. Why in those three sections is that phrase in a manger repeated? Because as born, this child is the focus of the drama. And the focus is on his identity. Who is the baby in a manger? Who is the baby in the manger when he is born? And Mary wraps him in cloths and lays him in a manger. Who is this baby who lies in a manger that the shepherds were told to go see? Who is this baby that lies in a manger that the shepherds see wrapped in swaddling cloths? Who is he? This is another baby. The identity of this baby is fundamental. It is the fundamental question of the Christian religion. You call Jesus of Nazareth merely a good person. You call him a crusader for your agenda of social justice. You call him an example. You call him an example of a person who gives up his own life for a worthy cause. He's willing to die for the cause he believes in. Isn't that heroic? You do all that, and you do not know Jesus of Nazareth. You have not properly identified who he is. Jesus of Nazareth is God. God in the flesh. And either he is God, God in the flesh, which he claimed to be. Either he is, or he's a megalomaniac liar. You can't have it both ways. You can't domesticate Jesus down to a nice peasant Jew. You cannot domesticate him down to a merely good man, a great man. Albert Schweitzer tried to do that and he gave up and went off to to the Congo and played Bach in the jungle. It doesn't work. You cannot domesticate Jesus down to your agenda. If you do, he disappears because, of course, he'll fall short of your agenda, just like you fall short of your agenda. But if he is God, God the Son as he claims to be, then your agenda changes. Your whole view of Jesus changes. His whole identity draws you into a dimension which is not of this world. It is the dimension of God the Son eternal in the heavens and has been eternal 
in the heavens from all eternity and will be to all eternity. And that is the person before whom you will stand. I will stand. Every person in the world will stand. Oh, as you stand before him, you say, oh, well, you're just a good man. Do you think he would dare say that when you were standing before him? As the glory of his resurrected body is shining in its radiance upon you, and you would call him, oh, you're just a good man. You were a great example. You were a heroic, uh, a heroic figure because you died for your cause. Can you imagine yourself standing in front with the throne of judgment and saying that to the Son of God, he would say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because you never knew me. The identity of Jesus of Nazareth is crucial to Christianity. You take away the deity of Christ, you take away the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, God in the flesh. You take that away. You subtract that. And you do not have Christianity. You got Unitarianism. You got the United Church of Christ. You got Mormonism. You got Jehovah's Witnesses. You got all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. You got liberal Presbyterians, Baptists, Lutherans, Episcopalians. If Jesus of Nazareth isn't God, you don't have Christianity. So, have your coffee cuts, have your cookies after whatever social service you have because you're not worshiping God anymore. You're worshiping a, a, a figment of your imagination. Or you're worshiping a political movement or social cause or something else. You've bought a mess of pottage if Jesus is not God. This is Ground-level stuff. It has to be the very foundation of catechizing children. Be the very foundation of, of Christian fathers in their homes teaching their children the truth of the Word of God. They have to take the basic question, who is Jesus of Nazareth, and they must be able to answer it clearly to their children and teach their children why he is God of gods. If you don't have that capacity, then find somebody who can help you out and teach you how to teach your children. Because no child understands who Jesus is unless they understand that he is God. God the Son. From there, their faith is built up on that rock and foundation. All right, now, in verse 8, the shepherds enter the narrative, and I place their question why. And I've listed a series of prophetic passages in historical order from the earliest to the latest. Now, the reason I raise the question is because of the commentaries on this verse. The most popular interpretation of why Luke has the angel appear to shepherds, why the shepherds hear 
this gospel message in verse 11. The most popular interpretation is because the shepherds were lowlife. Shepherds in this time in the first century or early first century B.C., shepherds were brigands, robbers, criminals. They wouldn't even be trusted in a Jewish court to give testimony. And therefore, this is part of Luke's pattern of Jesus being, of, of those who are lowly and sinful being told about the Savior. Now, that sounds quite credible and plausible at first sight. In other words, it would make sense that if shepherds are regarded in this way in the, at this time, that an appearance to a fairly rank and low-down group of sinners would make a very interesting point for the later church who would read this passage or read this story. However, the testimony to the character of shepherds at this period is not uniform. In other words, it's not always the case that shepherds were thieves and robbers at this time in the early century B.C. Well then, why does Luke have the shepherds receive the initial declaration of the birth of Jesus? Because of prophecy, which he doesn't cite, but which he knows. The shepherds are part of a pattern, a redemptive historical pattern that goes all the way back to the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. You know that passage because Matthew uses it. When the wise men come to Herod and say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And the scribes read from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem of Judea, little town of Bethlehem, the ruler will come forth who will shepherd my people Israel. So, the shepherd motif for Luke is like the shepherd motif for Matthew. Only Luke actually has shepherds receive this revelation because, in fact, he is emphasizing the true shepherd of the people of God, the true shepherd of of the church, the true shepherd of the world, if you will, this babe lying in a manger who will be described as the good shepherd of the sheep by the Apostle John. Now, not only Micah in the 7th century, 8th century B.C., but Jeremiah in the 7th century B.C., Jeremiah says, the Lord will gather Israel and keep him, that is, keep Israel as a shepherd keeps his flock. Here's another prophecy of an eschatological shepherd. A shepherd coming to rule his people Israel, Micah 5. A shepherd coming to keep his flock like a shepherd, Jeremiah 
In Ezekiel 34, I will set over them one shepherd. He will feed them and be their shepherd. One shepherd of the sheep from the prophet Ezekiel in the 6th century B.C. And finally, Zechariah in that same 6th century B.C. I am going to raise up a shepherd who will care for the perishing, seek the scattered, and heal the broken. What you have coalescing here, what you have being collapsed here, is Luke suggesting that the appearance to the shepherds is the fulfillment of the shepherd prophecies of the coming of the Messiah in Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and other places of the prophets. But he doesn't cite any passages. Jesus doesn't cite any passages in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, does he? He simply goes through the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he says, they're all about me. Oh, wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall listening to that conversation? But he doesn't cite any particular path. Luke is doing essentially the same thing. He's using the motif to draw you into the drama of the shepherd fulfillment of this messianic, saving, salvific personality. So I submit that arguing about the character of the shepherds here is irrelevant. What is relevant is the fact that these shepherds are about to meet the great shepherd of the sheep. These shepherds are about to walk to Bethlehem and look down on one who is the shepherd of their souls. These shepherds are going to see the fulfillment of the ages in this child who is Micah's shepherd, Jeremiah's shepherd, Ezekiel's shepherd, Zechariah's shepherd, God's shepherd, now come to earth in the fullness of time. It's the shepherd pattern for shepherds. That's what it's about. Randy, you've had your hand up. Wasn't Abraham a shepherd? He's not called a shepherd, at least not that I'm aware of. He had flocks and and herds, but the, the label isn't placed on him. Plenty of shepherds were wealthy good businessmen, why would they have to be poor, uh, lowly... Uh, yeah, the, ar- the, argument is, the, ar- the argument is that in this post-exilic area, in other words, this age uh, after the Maccabean era, which is intertestamental period, that this occupation began to be looked down on. And it attracted a kind of low-life uh, employee. In other words, it was not as highly respected as Abraham having flocks and sheep, etc. It wasn't as highly respected as those who had great wealth uh, out of it. Nabal, for instance, in Second Samuel. <clears throat> so um, th- there's a there's a decline in the way e- Judaism looks at shepherds in the intertestamental period, and so that is laid upon this passage in order to explain why the angel appears to the shepherds. I'm bypassing that. I don't, I, I don't like it. Okay? <clears throat> I may be wrong, but I still don't like it. Where'd they get their clothing from? Where'd they get their clothing from? The rich folks in the city. Then they have to get them from the shepherds somewhere not along the line. Oh, oh you mean the, the wool and so on. Oh, no. Well, that, well yes. They, 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 of course, would sell the wool, etc., but they would also rob travelers, that's, or at least that's the story. 
Yes, Scott. Were all shepherds at this period independent businessmen, or were they also possibly servants of somebody else who owned the sheep? That's conceivable. Uh, hard to know that in this case. They're just shepherds out in the field. Okay, well, um, wouldn't you know it? We, we come to handle Vivaldi and Corelli, and we have to stop. Yes. Oh, David, I'm sorry. Uh, this is a little bit off trajectory, but uh, the debate about whether Mary was of the house of David, it seems to me that the word of God is true multi-dimensionally. And if the egg was used uh, for generations of the humanity of Christ, it would seem to me that that would mean that Mary was under the house of David. I, I think your comment is correct. I, I like the uh, connection of the nature of Christ to her nature, which does confirm her lineage then. Uh, <clears throat> I can't prove it. it you know, the text is silent on it, except the way Luke arranges this. And that, you know, I'm, 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 of course, you think I'm a madman about structure. But this structure here, I think, is, is poignant. I think it's suggesting... Uh, that both are of the, of the lineage of David. That's my that's my personal opinion. I'm not dogmatic about it because I realize that there's a great disagreement on the other side. It's a minor it's a minor point. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> uh, when we resume, uh, we will resume with uh, uh, verse 9b, and uh, then we'll talk about Handel, Vivaldi, and Corelli, and uh, <clears throat> increase your education. And you're certainly free to to uh, listen to these ahead of time uh, before I comment on them uh, in next session. And incidentally, in, in, in case you don't want to type all of these things into your, your search engine and your computer, uh, wait till the handout goes up on the website. And then all you have to do is go to the handout and click on the link, and it'll take you directly to it. It's a lot easier than having to type this all in. Okay? <clears throat> now, you can type it all in if you want to do it. But, of course, you know, if you're like me, you, you see all some of those funny combinations of capitals and lower cases, and you'll make a mistake, and then you have to go back and do it all over again. <clears throat> but in any event, uh, when, when these lectures are posted on the Northwest Theological Seminary website, then the handouts are, are embedded, and these links are embedded in the handout. So you just click on the handouts and go to the link, and bingo, it'll be up there, and... <clears throat> It's, it's likely Mary's very good about getting up, getting them up. And George, our webmaster, is very good about getting them up, usually within a week and sometimes even within half a week. But at any rate, it, just a little trick. You know, if you don't want to have to type all these out, just wait till the handouts are, are posted and then you can go in and, you know, just put your cursor on that link. Bingo. And it'll, it'll go right to the performance. And incidentally, these are not long performances. The, the Vivaldi is only two minutes, a little more than two minutes. And the Corelli, if you listen to the whole thing, is 15 minutes. So they're, they're not uh, oratorio style. And, of course, you all know Handel's uh, Glory to God from the Messiah. All right. Uh, see you two weeks. Uh, enjoy your break. I look forward to mine. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, it is a delight to think 
more deeply about these things of our Savior. Not just the affirmation that He is your eternally begotten Son, marvelous as that is, but that it is so because He is also the second man, the man from heaven. He is the man who reverses all that that first man reversed in sin. He is the man who takes away all of that guilt that that first man brought upon himself in shame. He is the man that bears away the judgment, for he took the curse of that judgment upon his own body and canceled it for those that believe upon his precious name. We bless you for your son. We bless you for the way in which he came into the world through a virgin. We bless you for the fact that he is of the house of David. We bless you that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. We bless you, O Lord, that he was even in his obscurity greater than Caesar Augustus. And so we thank you that even in a time when we wonder whether or not we are living the tyranny of an imperial political system over again, we thank you that we know the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Savior of our souls, that they can destroy our body, but they cannot destroy our soul. Do encourage us then with these gospel good tidings, even as you encourage the shepherds in fields long ago in Bethlehem. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.